I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. <clears throat> You're listening to the Sands Pants Network. Home of comedy, <laughs> culture, adventures, and ghosts. Welcome to Bookish. I'm George Demarellis. This is a show where we ask you what's your story and what does it say about you. Today on the show, we have a science presenter, energy researcher, and children's author based in Melbourne, Australia. He has a PhD in physics from Cavendish Laboratory at the University of Cambridge, and in 2016 was named one of the ABC's top five scientists under 40, as well as the recipient of the 2021 Celestino Eureka Prize for promoting understanding of science. He has also founded the website noiseversussignal.org for digital protest against mass surveillance. Dr. Neeraj Lal, a pleasure to have you on the show. Oh, thanks for having me, George. Great to be with you. To start with that, actually, I do find it interesting you have a very broad, <laughs> it's almost like a quintessentially Aussie upbringing in a lot of ways, it seems like, uh, from like the stuff you've done in terms of like couriering in Perth and doing this stuff in Coffs Harbour, and then you've gone to England, as so many Australians do, and now you're based in Melbourne. Like... What is your like? What is that? Is that did you? Where were you based originally, and how did that all develop? Well, that's a bit of a random story, really. I was uh, born in Hawaii uh, in the in the US, and um, I grew up in Canberra um, mostly until I finished school, and then went to some uni in Melbourne, and then I came back to Canberra, and then after I finished my undergrad, I took some time off, worked, uh, went. Over to Perth with a girlfriend of mine at the time, and worked as a bicycle courier in Perth, uh, which is amazing. One of the most funnest jobs I've ever had in my life. And then got a job there in Perth, uh, working for SciTech, which is like a, an organisation that goes out and does science shows for primary school kids across the state. And it was just wonderful. I really loved it. Developed some really lovely skills that I still use to this day of you know, presenting and, and talking and talking with little ones. And then, uh, yeah, no, just through my time, I've just taken a whole bunch of different time off in undergrad took a year off to just work in some random jobs and worked on a tuna boat for a while and worked on a farm for a bit and as a like a carpet salesman for a bit and like as a gardener and yeah. I don't know whatever <laughs> just some rando jobs but that's no, nice it's nice to do different things I think it's um yeah like I think it helps expand uh keep you out of any certain bubble too much where you can at least understand where other people are coming from. Oh, totally. I do find it interesting because like you yeah. do your yes yeah, so this science presenting is a big part of what you do as well as these kids books you've done it's interesting because your background, well, it looks like what you studied, you got a PhD in physics, which is a little bit drier than I think. A lot of people do science presenting. Sometimes they're more in like maybe biology or like that sort of thing. You're like, you're like the hard math. So it's like the, the more intense one, I guess. 
Oh, yeah, I mean, it's, I guess it's, it's classified hard science, but I think, I mean, I don't think because of how it's taught, I think, um, I think physics is really accessible to us all. I mean, like we're all, I think we all get how stuff works intuitively on, you know, things of our length scale and time scale. I think kids really get it and they're really curious. And I think we're curious as adults too. I reckon there's so much like, amazing stuff, beautiful stuff in physics and how stuff works that we could appreciate it more. And I think part of that is, is teaching it better and sharing it better and making it more accessible. Yeah. No, like, I, I mean, I agree. I'm always trying to, it's one of the things which for me, evolution and biology, that's always been like the one that hooked me into science probably more than anything else on the planet just because of its sheer beauty. But physics is obviously just fundamentally understanding. And like, it, it's so weird when you get deeper dive into, into quantum mechanics and stuff like that. It's, it's, I'm not even like it's so weird. <laughs> it's just hard to comprehend. Uh, but like, I always love dabbling. I always chuck in a science book now and then. Carlo Rovelli, I found is pretty good. Yeah, you probably know. Yeah, so no, no, I don't know. Oh, he's, re- um, he's really good. Yeah, yeah. He's just a really good science communicator. He's got a whole book entirely focused around uh, the concept of time and how all time is relative. Like, as in, I never actually conceived it, even though it's obvious again to people who know physics. But to me, like the idea that none of us are living in the same time at all. Like, cause in that's such a weird concept when you wrap your head around, it. you're like, Oh yeah. Like me to any person next to me, we're actually living in different time frames. Yeah. Technically, uh, it's incredible. It's- I think there's a really good kid story in there. It's, it's like a little seed in my head about how that works. Cause time and how we experience it is relative to how fast we're moving. So if you're in a spaceship, like going really fast, like close to the speed of light, then your clock ticks slower compared to someone who's just stationary. It's kind of like time travel. Um, and then if you go really fast, like if you kind of put your brain into that space, if you imagine yourself as a bit of light, which is traveling at the speed of light, then time is essentially stationary. And so for a photon of light, the whole history of the universe is happening in an instant. Yeah, it's, it's incomprehensible. Like it's hard to, hard to comprehend. I, 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 yeah, it's, it's above my pay grade, I feel like, sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I think, no, it's, I think it's all kind of, so the world around us, like the everyday world of objects and seconds and minutes and hours and days, I think it's really intuitive. We kind of get that on a biological mm. way because that's what we're used to. But the stuff at the really small scale, like quantum mechanics or things at the really long scale, like I don't know, dark matter and gravity or how, you know, how that stuff works, it's beyond our, it's beyond our everyday experience. So it, it's not really intuitive and that doesn't make it, it makes it harder to understand for everyone just because it's yeah yeah it's, a, it's it's we have to use metaphor and stuff to try to wrap our heads around it because it's not part of our everyday experience yeah like i just remembered the book the one that's like freaks me out it's like your feet are older than your head <laughs> technically because it's closer to the <laughs> planet's surface which i think is hilarious of course in nano seconds but yeah, yeah well it's a funny idea um yeah so i guess like it's what good. Like so, it sounds like you actually fell into the science presenting stuff quite early on in all this, as you were almost doing everything else. Um, was that form of communication is that specifically to kids, or is that to kind of like everyone? And is like what? How was that kind of? Was it or was it just like a job you fell into that then you actually liked and then you just kept doing it? Yeah, I mean a bit of all of the above, really. Um, I got to do some when I was studying. I got to be a tutor at uni, and I loved that. And then um, got to do it a bit more you know, through SciTech and travelling around and then got to continue it in my PhD and was lucky enough to keep going with, to be a lecturer at uni and, right. and teach classes there. And the whole process, I really loved it. It's um, it's a beautiful thing, helping people learn and, and sharing that knowledge. So super keen to share that, you know, amazingness of the universe and nature and our communities and communicate that to, to everyone. Um, but there's something I feel as we get older, 
we start to self-select our information more and more. And, you know, I find myself in my own little echo chamber of people that agree with me and only select, you know, news and media things that I like or whatever. I'm trying to be vigilant against it, but it's really hard. I think that happens more and more. I think it's a real danger for our society, actually. But there is one time when we are all listening, and that's when we're kids. That's when we're, you know, in school, we are... We're not self-selecting our own curriculum. We're not self-selecting our own subjects. Um, and I think the, the power of communication is maybe more powerful the younger you go. And so for me, it's science is communicating science is about, you know, communicating how amazing the world is, but also communicating the process of science, how we figure stuff out, how we learn how to believe something or not. What does evidence look like? Who should we trust? And there are no really easy answers to that, but if we can help little ones start to think critically and creatively, I think our world will be better for it. So that's that's part of my aim for science hmm. communication. No, that's, that's true. And, uh, and like, I guess that sort of semi-ties, that's why I wanted to hear that before we go into your book of choice, because from there we can jump right as well. But it sounds like it might relate, touch on all of that a little bit, as well as a whole lot more. So let's do that. Your book of choice for today is? That's Full Circle by Scott Dudlam. So it's a book published last year by... An environmental activist, uh, former senator, Greens, but now just kind of thinker and campaigner and writer. And it's just an incredible book from, for me on so many different levels. I just found it a real starkly powerful, interesting nugget of a book with a whole bunch of different layers and facets to it. So some of it is just some really lovely science communication talking about kind of the history of the universe and the earth until the growth of life and humans as a species in our communities. So there's like kind of interspersed throughout the book is that history um, up into for our society. But it's also an exploration of the political systems that have led us to the places we are at with our current state of environmental regulation and you know, it's functioning of our ecosystems and calling out things for what they are. So calling out state capture for what it is control of our politicians based on industry lobby groups, the influence of the media, the influence of information networks, uh, and then some of the things that we can do around it too. So, I mean, part of my research, my PhD was in physics, but it was on solar panels, trying to make them more efficient with with light. And since then, I I continued to work on solar energy, solar panels, and then now working in renewable energy kind of sector reform and figuring out how to get more renewables into the grid without it blowing up. And... Like, I love it. It's a cool day job. But more and more I'm, I'm seeing that actually the tech isn't the impediment to what we want to do. Efficient panels isn't what we need. A better evolved grid is really simple to do in some kind of sense. Uh, what's stopping us are these structural power interests. But even then, even if we have like a beautiful 100% renewable energy grid and whatever it might be, it's all powered by solar panels and wind turbines and you know, good storage and stuff, even then... There is still a system that sits behind it of coin doubling, of profit maximizing, of extractive industries that are going to like take stuff from the natural world and wrap it and turn it out into something that we're going to buy and probably chuck in the bin after a couple of weeks. And that process will become faster. It'll spin quicker, even if it's powered with, with more accessible, cheaper renewable energy. And that's a that's a challenging thought for someone who's worked in that industry for a while. Um, but I think it's... I think it's true. It's really resonant. And so it's something that the book draws out too, that we can do all of these things, but we are 
being sculpted into this machine of growth and extraction and consumption, often not to our benefits for our physical health, for our environmental health, for our mental health, often just to continue the profits of people within that structural power system. <laughs> so anyway, that's um, something that the book draws out. I've, I've really enjoyed reading it. Uh, it's really readable. Okay. Great. Um, I mean, so much there I would love to unpack immediately. Firstly, uh, very happy to hear about structural issues behind things. I'm, I'm all about that. Firstly, uh, there was one earlier point, because it's just an article I read uh, like a few days ago, uh, where some university did a study of oil and gas profits over the last 50 years as, as an industry as a whole. And they calculated that apparently the industry has made $3 billion profit a day for 50 years. And it's like, what kind of impact yeah. would that have on society? Like, it's just in terms of power, like protecting itself and marketing and politics and all that stuff. Like, you hear that number, and you're just like, oh, of course, everything we think and hear and consume is based on what these people want to think is happening, essentially. And that's going to sound very conspiracy-minded, but it's more yeah. like they're not going to fund people who they disagree with, and they've got the money to do it. So. I agree. I think that's a really excellent stat. I saw the study too. I think it's what's remarkable about that too is the calculation of the tax that was paid on that profit. And then oftentimes it is like it's bugger all. So I don't know if you've seen, I don't know if you saw the Wallabies, you know, recently or the state of origin, you know, the footy codes. Santos sponsors the Wallabies and Ampol sponsors the state of origin. And both of those companies pay more for that sponsorship of those, of, for the rights of that than they do in tax. And there's something wrong with that system. I mean, maybe that's clever accounting on their part and clever advertising, but there's something wrong with a system that allows that. That influence is being, you know, branded on our eyeballs, but they're similarly paying for access and influence mm. within parliament, within within lobby groups. They're supporting political advertising. They're supporting donations. They're supporting political staffing within our the people that are governing our country. And that has a really strong influence that is not visible and it should be visible. And we should, if we would like to have true control over what we, where we'd like our country to go, um, we need to see that and discuss that more. So we, we're, right now we're arguing about an emissions reduction target, uh, 43% or whether it should be more or whatever. But actually we're, we're the world's largest exporter of coal. Um, we're the world's fifth largest exporter of gas. And while we're debating this kind of target over here, this other massive thing is going on where we're selling all of this stuff overseas and that's not part of the conversation and it really yeah, is. Yeah, I mean, the, the, I think that's part of what, at least if we were profiteering for ourselves, you could be like, all right, it's done. But like, I mean, <laughs> yeah. we're getting, we're getting screens and rows and everything out of it. It's like, we're literally getting nothing. It's like 80, 80 cents or something goes right. overseas out of everything that gets covered. It's like some, or even more, like... That's a part that's incomprehensible. It's like just at least be selfish. Like in, at least as a country, like we've got a dog at least get something yeah. from it. Uh yeah, no, so you're definitely yeah. uh, preaching the choir over here with that one. Um but the uh along, along the same lines, I think I to go back to the the book's discussion about and what you said there about um from the systemic point of view as well, because yeah, the the obviously the influence of large uh, organizations that's common knowledge and stuff. But I think the other side of it as well, which you mentioned, which I think is something which I hadn't actually even, even though I knew of it, I never really thought of it in this context. But I'm pretty sure there's a name for it as well, but it's the theory that the more efficient you get at using a resource, the actually yeah. more you use that resource, not less. So it's one of those weird counterintuitive things which people want to know about. It's been proven a million times where you think it's just like, it's just like how yeah. we thought if we get more efficient at work, we'll work less, but that's just not how it works. Everything always, as soon as you get better at it, for some reason, that just means you can make more money off it because you can do it cheaper. So 
it actually is the opposite of the effect you want. So Exactly right. Yeah, it's called Javon's Paradox. This guy actually visited Australia back in like the 1800s or something or 1700s and he saw the coal fields and he was like, oh, well, you're actually getting better at extracting more coal and using it. Um, so therefore we should kind of use less coal. Um, but no, we extracted it better. It decreased the price of coal, which led to its increased usability. So everyone's like, oh, I want coal to do that and I want to generate to do that. And so we vastly ramped up the efficiency of coal. And it's the same with renewable energy. As much as I would like, it's a good thing, we should have it. But the increased efficiency of renewable energy with, with which you can get electricity from the grid or increased electrification of our society, it'll be great. But it will make that machine go faster. It will mean that we will extract more, we will do more, we will buy more, we will sell more. I don't know if that's the way we want to go. And that's like, like you said, that's an interesting point because I never actually thought, I never connected those two dots together and thought about how deep that systemic issue can be, both in terms of like the problems causing, but also like, oh yeah, even if you fix it, if you haven't fixed this, it can actually not solve the problem because yeah, maybe we've got more efficient energy, but then we're just pumping out even more plastic or whatever it is. Exactly. Uh, exactly right. So, exactly right. Oh, man, I could talk about that for ages. <laughs> it's just actually uh, one slight tangent of that, just because I do want to know before I go to something else. But um, in terms of energy extraction stuff, and this is something again you might be able to explain better. But essentially, I never understood how good hydrogen was until recently, because someone I never understood what it was really this concept that um this fuel which can be storable. But from my understanding, it's essentially the best way to save re- renewable energy to use later. Is the way I could kind of comprehend it. I think, look, I think it's pretty good. I reckon it's pretty good. It's, uh, you know, pretty clean. You can make it. Um, and you, when you want electricity again, you just so you use electricity. You make you split water into hydrogen and oxygen. And then when you want it back again, so you store it in tanks. And when you want it back again, you bring them together. You make water and electricity out. Pretty good. Pretty simple. Been doing it for a while. Uh, I'm a little skeptical. This is my maybe my own view here. But um, the biggest way we make hydrogen now is getting it out of gas. Um, and so, you know, you go buy hydrogen now, it's mostly gas. It's more, it's made from gas. Uh, and I'm skeptical of the fossil fuel <laughs> structure in saying, oh, let's use hydrogen. And then they can use a whole bunch of gas and continue that, um, ability to, to extract and sell gas for the, for the while. For me, maybe it'll have some niche applications. I think it might be maybe some heavy vehicles, maybe, maybe planes, but for me, the best way to store electricity is uh, pumping it up a hill and then uh, pumping it back down a hill when you need it. And that's currently how 95% of the world's electricity is stored, pumped hydro. Really? Yep. And I really reckon it's going to be the thing that, that's going to... That's so that's simple. I love that. So you just put on... Because you're just using gravity to... That's right. That's what we do currently. That's a, it's a pumped hydro. There's uh, some, a whole bunch of literature on how many sites there are in Australia, a whole bunch being built right now. So we're going to have home batteries and electric vehicles storing it out for the day, probably, um, connected up in a smart way, and then pumped hydro storing it up for weeks and months. But how can it, like, what, it just it. puts it up the top of a bigger hill? <laughs> yeah. No, that's right. Exactly. So Intuit, I mean, that's what the Snowy 2.0 scheme is. It's uh, exactly that, storing electricity right. and water up a hill. And then letting it flow back down again when that's you need it. Wow, like that's because I just only wrapped my head around thanks to this like hydrogen look at like the idea of energy itself being yeah. like anything essentially that's energy. So like, as in you kind of think of it as like it's it's petrol or whatever, but it's actually just whatever that releases this energy. So yeah, which is basically you use the excess power at the time to push stuff up a hill, <laughs> and then when you want it, right. it just falls down the hill. Exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> I love how basic that sounds. Uh, the best science is simple. Gravity. Yeah. What a, what an energy source. <laughs> Going yeah. nowhere. Yeah. That's right. Resilient. No waste. That's right. Well, yeah. I, I, gravity is another one, which I, I only comprehended recently as a 
space, time, and gravity being basically the same thing in terms of how they interact. And I was like, oh, I never really understood that as well. So the size of a, we're, we're all we're all bending yeah. space time. We're all, we all have gravity around us, and that's yeah. Oh, that's that's the subject of my kids' book. Oh, actually. Really? Um, yeah, it's a uh, so it's called Henry the Flying Emu. Uh, it's published by uh, Woods Lane. Uh, it's about an emu that learns how to fly by going into gravitational orbit. Um, so it run, learns to run and jump so far and so fast that he goes and then the Earth curves around away from him and then he goes into orbit. And that's that's actually how orbits work. That's the picture with which general relativity views orbits too, that they are a straight line in space-time falling around the, the, the ah, curved space. Oh, that, yeah. That's sick. Nice. Okay, <laughs> you're doing you're, you're communicating to me right now. That's, that's, that's great. <laughs> oh, that's a uh, my brain. That's uh, that's great. Thank you for that. That was very interesting. <laughs> One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Um, so uh, to go to the point we were saying before though and I think this is one which I'm interested to hear of your view because you are a science communicator you have a deep knowledge of what's going on you also see the structural and systemic issues that might be the cause of it in your view I don't know where we stand politically like each of us in terms of um, I don't know if you want to burn the whole system down or whatever it is but I guess the big one for me and which I think and this book looks like it talks about as well is the feeling of hopelessness the feeling of it's all too much, you can't do anything, essentially. Now, I would think of it, I think the most obvious example of this is um, specifically uh, climate change and the feeling that it's just too big and we just can't change it and people can sometimes end up almost backing out completely and giving up, even though from my understanding, actually, while it's not fixed, the worst, worst case scenario is no longer a realistic thing anymore, which has been a huge win in terms of the absolute worst being stopped, which isn't enough to get complacent, but is important for people to get that framing. But I guess, do you want to talk about that? Like that, that feeling of hopelessness, whether relating to climate change or whether these larger systemic issues and yeah, what's your view on it? What does the book say about it? Yeah, no, it touches on it a bit. It's a really interesting question. There's two parts of that question. Um, one is visibility of exactly what the trajectory that we're on and the things that might need changing if we'd like to change them. That's one question. And then the second question is, well, how do we act on that? How do we use that as incentive or motivation or what is our what is the starkness of like how bad stuff is and how does that, you know, kill our buzz to do anything or make us really depressed? One, the, the first question I think is very important. I think we can't 
We can't change what we don't know. And our ability to receive true information and discuss it is maybe lower than it has been in human history, I feel. Um, Julian Assange is currently being persecuted for publishing the truth, for publishing true information that revealed war crimes, that revealed illegal behaviour, all in the name of journalism. Our ability to have conversations that challenge structural power are really diminished. We have very heated discussions within our prescribed range of topics um, but aren't able to question what's really happening with our decision-making processes within parliament, within political funding, within donations. So step one is figuring stuff out, supporting whistleblowers, supporting the information to be shared and to be verified in the common space to have a really good look at what's happening with our climate, what's happening with our ecosystems. I don't know if we need too much more science on that, actually. I think it's pretty clear don't want to hit the planet, it's pretty clear that a whole bunch of ecosystems are really under threat uh, and that we need to value them more for our own benefit, let alone, you know, the rest of the planet. Um, So one is I think we really need to be visible on what we're doing, what's happening with our default lives, our default spending, our default dollars in our bank accounts. What what are they funding? Our default dollars in our super accounts, what are they funding? I think that visibility is really important and the more we know, the more empowered we are to do stuff. The question of what... What we should do with that information is really tricky. I think Scott talks about it a bit, to whatever action you can do, no matter how small. Um, I'll I'll read you a quote, actually, from the end of this book. Enough prefiguring, whatever your idea is, big or small, do it now. See you out in the village square. That's what he ends his book on. And at the end of it, there's a puzzle, there's a little quote. It says, find the others. Who knows what you might learn from taking a chance on conversation with a stranger? Everyone carries a piece of the puzzle. Nobody comes into your life by mere coincidence. Trust your instincts. Do the unexpected, find the others. It's by Timothy Leary. And I I think that's, I think maybe that's the answer. Let's do whatever we can within whatever sphere we can, using whatever skills we have. If you're an artist or you're a scientist or you're a writer or you're a whatever you might be, a nurse, a firefighter, a doctor or a teacher, uh, whatever skills we have, whatever ability we have to have those conversations and to open our eyes and and to share what we would like to do with the world, I think that will be enough if we can do it with honesty. It's a yeah. look. So, yeah. I, it's it's a lovely idea, I guess, but I, I want to push back on it slightly and be like, no, no, just Whoa, like, go go. Well, two separate <laughs> things. Firstly, like, okay, let me do the devil's advocate. I would say I'm sitting here as sure. let's say a millennial or whatever. I look at the world around me. I look how little power I have to change much of anything. So these grand ideas sound great. But then you look at like the world on fire in Europe right now or people getting away with more than ever, corporations cutting, getting away with more tax than ever, politicians more openly corrupt than in any point in any recent voices become brazen, almost a sign of legitimacy how corrupt you can be. And like let's say somewhere like Australia or somewhere like America, certain countries where the media is, well, Australia specifically, is wholly owned by a single like viewpoint. There is zero zero deviation from a single viewpoint for Australia specifically, but also everywhere has to different degrees that. Isn't it, what would you say? Like it's uh, that person says, what do I do? And it's like, do anything. But it's like, what? What, what can actually impact anything? Like as in. It's a good question. Uh, there's a quote from uh, Julian Assange. That probably, it's probably the, the, the best one that I, I know on this one. I'll see if I can bring it up. But the question is, uh, to, to paraphrase, is collectively open our eyes to the forces that are trying to manipulate us into providing them profit behind a facade of democracy and to be open and honest with that first up. Second thing, we can vote. Second thing, after that, we can think about our default dollars. Truly, we, we have power and the people in power are scared. They have to lie to us to 
allow our taxpayers' taxes to go into wars. They have to lie to us to allow our resources to be exploited. And they are scared of the grip that they have on that power um, because often it is often it is much weaker than they would like us, they would have us believe. So what can we do? We can organise, we can vote, we can participate. Uh, there's a lovely quote, I think, Margaret Mead. She says, uh, never for one instant doubt that a small group of committed individuals cannot change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that it ever has. So, man, what's the alternative, you know? I think we can just suck ourselves out into some kind of Aldous Huxley Brave New World dystopia where we're all just injecting ourselves with soma and watching uh, the TV. Or we can or we can be free. Well, look, uh, fun fact, actually, about to go on another tangent as well, but Brave New World, I didn't realise until I reread it recently that it's actually a utopia. Like it's talking about a version well, of utopia. Like I said, yeah. we might a lot of us might disagree with it, but actually, for a lot of people, it actually has figured out utopia essentially. Like as in, that's what made it such a cynically powerful yeah. book. I found. I was like, oh, actually, that's a beautiful book. I mean, that one, like Wally, is like on a similar kind of level, right? Like, and it's kind of where we're creeping towards. Uh, I think there's there's a beautiful book. Uh, oh, there's a beautiful quote uh, comparing 1984 versus A Brave New World, and uh, one is like controlling power through surveillance and draconian measures and violence and the other is controlling people and power by ensuring that they aren't interested in changing the system Um, by keeping people happy watching sports watching telly doing whatever it might be within the confines of what they're doing happy with their lives happy feeling enough chemicals of dopamine and serotonin whatever it is keeping us happy with our yeah, what we're ingesting and it is maybe more successful and it is the path that we are going down yeah i actually feel like uh whenever i look at the comparison so i'm like actually i think we're just i think we're both in the worst possible way <laughs> somehow yeah, we've both got right. the over surveillance right. control and like propaganda going on but at the same time we're all self-selecting to live in a flood of useless uh 100%. dulled out information and, and um, it's all happening. It's all happening on our phones. You know, we are completely addicted mm. to these bloody things. I like, you know, I am. Everybody adult, I reckon, in Australia is in some sense. We're checking it on average eighty-five times a day. Have got their hooks into our lizard brains of addiction. All the little bings and little symbols that look a bit like fruit and sound a bit like I know something fun. And that that kind of dopamine hit that they are uh, they've got us on is like a rat at a pokey machine and. I, I can't see us winning ourselves off that. Well, it's that's and that's, I guess, what I mean um, to go back to what we were just talking about before we jump into something else. The, the That idea of the addiction and the, like, it just can seem so overwhelming and hopeless, I guess, for people because they could be like, well, maybe I could fix it for me, maybe, <laughs> which is hard enough. But to see it for the world itself, I don't probably subscribe to the most negative because I don't actually think it's that different from how it's always been in a lot of ways. Um, but... The, I mean, it got laid bare recently, didn't it? With like the whole COVID thing. And then it turned out all these conspiracy theories. And you're like, wow, a large, a way larger percentage of the population than I thought believes some yeah. really, really wild stuff. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. I guess when you look at all that, you're like, what do you tell the person when they say stuff like that, when they look at all that and feel that hopelessness? Oh, yeah. Well, it's tricky, right? So I think we're in a place where we're not listening to the, other side we're not having the dialogue anymore and so what we have is people in our own individual media silos and i'm in my own self-correcting bubble and everyone else is in their own self-reform bubble and we hear the worst of the other side so what we have is 
a system where you know on one side there are people going oh man like, like i can't believe that there are people who are so stupid to not get backs like how could you not do that like the risk profile is so crazy why would you do that and then the other side you people are like saying oh, i can't believe that there are people who would get backs without knowing what's in the product and what about pfizer and moderna and all those companies that are just pushing whatever they need to do for their profits and there's elements of truth on both sides and we're not having the conversation in the middle and i think it's a tricky one adding to the trickiness is the fact that within our system there are real conspiracy theories that are really true that we are the subject of subtle propaganda we are the subject of psyops we are the subject of manipulation by various sources to control our debate to control what we see to influence the advertising that we scroll past on our eyeballs the trouble is knowing which conspiracy theories to believe it's a real tricky one and for me I, i can't see an answer out of it for us as adults for me i think that's why it's so important to equip young people with the tools of critical thinking to explore the evidence in front of them to make up the decision for themselves and trust what constitutes good evidence what constitutes good evidence-based reasoning it's a real challenge yeah it is and i i guess i've got a few uh firstly the side things is super interesting when people it's just like how the biggest news company in the world says don't trust the news you got to love that that complex angle, yeah. isn't it? Interesting. <laughs> I guess to go on this point, though, this this idea of both sides and all that sort of thing. See, again, even there, uh, I feel like we have a liberal sense, a lot of people, to fall into this habit of saying that because it's kind of true, but also I feel like it's like there's just like 20% of the population that they, their heart's in the right place. And they actually, I know some of these people and they're actually very sweet. The value they have isn't in the sense that it, oh, it's both sides. I feel like they're actually just like, ah, oh, these people are just getting manipulated in a sense. How do you know that's not you, George? How do you know you? You're pretty because sweet. Because it's going like your heart's in the right place. But you got to be able to give yourself well, a, right, like some know. credit as well. You know what I mean? If we put us all in the same level, well, that's that's the mistake we're making. Nah, same. They're being logical too. They're saying you're looking at the data. They're looking at the the evidence, man. You're like you're blinded, they are blinded. man. They are sheeple. They are. <laughs> <laughs> no, they're getting like honestly. It is, uh, it's. Uh, then you fall victim to the everyone being like, well, everyone's got opinions. And again, this plays into the whole ah. Oh, what's a professional, what's research and what's all this. It's like most people are in no basis no, to actually understand right. half of it. I'm not. Like as in you actually have to just instead have an almost less faith in your own understanding, more trust and stuff. I, I agree. It, 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 there's certainly you know, we need humility and I think even, you know, good scientists or good thinkers have humility too. Coming from this with a from a science bent, from an angle of, you know, publishing papers and peer review and, and understanding what that process is like. I think we would do better to share what that means, to share what that process is, the, sh- the, the process of peer review, the process of getting data and what that looks like, the the, the risks and the, the possibilities for that to be manipulated. You know, they exist, but they're very, very small. So the question is, what's the big, bigger conspiracy here? Is it that all of the world scientists are together and manipulating research data on the efficacy of vaccines? Or is the you know is what era is the conspiracy about pharmaceutical companies trying to you know hold state governments into supporting their own business of manufacturer there's bigger questions here one is why the hell do we have global patents on these on vaccines at times of global pandemics i think something that australia denied for a long time to our great shame which finally supported it so there are real challenging questions of power and money and manipulation, uh, it's just a challenge of trying to find well, which are the right ones and, and who to believe in. And I, I think we can talk more about what research and evidence-based thinking really is. I think that's, that's certainly my goal for science communication. 
Well, yeah. I mean, I guess on that point, um, like <laughs> now that my rant is done, I've uh, <laughs> I've successfully alienated half the okay. world as well. Uh, look, we've jumped around. Let's let's pull it back a bit because I do find this interesting as well. I was looking at your list of favorite books, yeah. and firstly, I saw um. More than one role dial on there, which I think is beautiful. Uh, you actually yeah. reminded me, I'd forgotten about the wonderful story of Henry Sugar. That took me, that's ah, like me getting a flashback. That's like my yeah. version of the uh, the Madeline thing. Like hearing you say that, I was like, oh my God. And oh, I just flash back to like 20 years ago reading that where he visualized the flame behind the card. Like, ah, it's, it's such a lovely story. It's Actually, it's my favorite it's story. Beautiful. So, so I guess beautiful. like, yeah, is there any, uh, did you always like kids books? Is that something which you always appreciated? It's weird calling them kids books, but like, yeah, Roald Dahl and things like that. I really did. Um, I, yeah, Roald Dahl is yeah one of my favorite authors. Oh no, I, I love them all. I think the stories written for kids are, are just absolutely wonderful. Um, in that they are they have to be good. They have to they have to have a real story. Have to have a real tale. Um, you have to almost forget that the author exists. The best of them are some of the best stories that we tell. Uh, the fables that we tell, the indigenous stories that are spoken of, that are told, that are carried on. Um, there's a reason why they have lasted so long. Yeah, I love them. It's nice to just go on a, to not get too political as well, and to, to go on a on a trip of of your mind and creativity of what the world might be yeah, of of storytelling. It's a it's a lost art, but there are some books that that do it just so beautifully, and mm. here's certainly some of them. Yeah, no, that's I definitely agree. Now, hopefully, you're a. Uh... I guess with your foray now to kids' books, you can approach your own way of trying to get there. So again, it feels strange calling the kids' books rather than like just oh, everyone all- books, essentially. <laughs> yeah. Ah, it's all good. It's a long way to go. But no, yeah, no, it's um, something I, I really enjoyed and tried to do with my kids' book. But man, that's it, yeah. Yeah, well, <laughs> well he's like the mark, like, yeah, his stuff is, <laughs> how do you even think of some of that stuff? Yeah, it's yeah. interesting seeing his short stories, yeah. the darker, more mature stuff and how that compares to the same. It's like. Yeah. I love it. It's so, it's stories for adults are just, mm. uh, Fantastic. Yeah, no, that guy's going to say thank you for reminding me of that story. I actually want to go away and read it again because I, it's weird remembering it's a story which you haven't thought about in 20 years. <laughs> okay, uh, I guess we've kind of jumped around a lot there. I know you get to get off, so I guess we'll uh, close it off there. Thank you so much for being on the show. Is there anywhere you want to send people, uh, which I can also put in the show notes as well? Oh, um, I would send them, oh, I guess on what we've talked about. Send them to my article on, on Julian Assange. Um, I study physics oh. with him in Melbourne, and I think it's one of the most interesting topics of our time, the most important case of our time. Uh, the writings of Caitlin Johnston are incredible too. And then finally, this book, uh, Full Circle by Scott Ludlam, which I think is amazing. And if you like kids' books, check out henrytheflyingemu.org. Uh, it's, uh, it's the kids' book. Yeah, that that's, that's awesome. Okay, well, thanks very much. Um, yeah, pleasure to have you on. <laughs> Thanks for listening. If you want to help support this show and all the other shows we do here at Sans Pants Radio, then why not subscribe to SansPantsPlus.com. For as little as $5 a month, you could have access to a whole bunch of bonus shows and content. Once again, that's SansPantsPlus.com.